computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today is my pleasure to welcome Emily Rosmond, a, an Olympian and also a representative of the Commonwealth Games for Australia as well. And so this lady is extraordinary talent. She has competed in the Winter Olympics and then managed to switch sports halfway through and actually compete at the Summer Commonwealth Games in a completely different sport. Today, we're going to look at what does it take to perform at the highest level? What does it take to be an athlete where you can dive deep into one domain and then switch halfway through your career and move into a whole different sport, despite the politics of that sport really being quite unfavorable, shall we say. And Emily gives a lot of insight now in her new role, the Queensland University of Technology, where she focuses on athlete development and not just the typical athlete, which you may know today, but the athlete of tomorrow, which includes on computers and looking at what does esports and what does a role of that look like when you think about it from a competitive nature. Some great conversations. Let's dive straight in. Emily, thanks for joining us. And where I really want to focus this discussion is really about what it takes to be an Olympian. And I feel like you have unbelievable experience in this space given that you've but you've, you've done both the winter and the summer sports and so i'd love to take can you take us back to your where you first embarked on the idea of becoming you know a high level athlete not just something you might just kind of dip your toe in mm, yeah sure i'd love to and uh, look for me it started i was an 80s kid and i grew up in cairns tropical north queensland and um you know, I remember growing up and watching cool runnings on television and I thought, oh, great, I want to be an Olympian. You know, the Jamaican bobsled team can actually make it and go to the Olympics, <laughs> win, you know, then anyone can actually do it. I don't know if you've seen cool runnings or not, but tell um, I love that movie, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I didn't have the same realisations you though. I, did, I, I was like, well, that's an amazing story. I wasn't like, I, I could do that, but that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, so for some reason for me at 11 years old, I was like, yep, I can do that. I'm going to be an Olympian. And I that age it was kind of like front of mind and I think I spoke about it a lot with my parents like yeah I want to go to the Olympics and so you know I grew up in Cairns you know there was no ice skating and, and my Olympic sport was um, short track speed skating which is on ice there was no Olympic ice skating rink or anything as such in Cairns there was a roller skating rink so I started roller skating and um, and I started competing I was a really competitive like 12 year old I'd go to like national championships in in roller skating and you know, I was one of those kids, if I didn't win, I'd cry, I'd be at the end of the world. And, you know, so I've always been really competitive. And I think, you know, my parents took me a little bit more seriously as I got older. My dad was working at the airlines, so he would fly me to Brisbane on the weekends when he was working. We got really, you know, family discounts to, you know, to travel. So, you know, that was that was really nice. I got to spend a lot of time with my dad and I'd go ice skating on the weekends and yeah, because it was Winter Olympic sport, you know, for me, it was like, okay, yeah, well, you know, I'll just keep going and, you know, I'm on on track, I'm, I'm going to go to the Olympics. And, you know, what I didn't realise as, you know, as a 14, 15, 16-year-old was I was a very long way off the mark in terms of competitive speed skating. Interesting. Yeah, it was. It was, it was, um, it was a, yeah, I guess, a challenging time. And Australia as a nation is pretty far off the pace in terms of, you know, our winter olympic speed skating program but but anyway i, I kept going and I, I kept competing and skating and doing that whilst at school we eventually my family relocated to 
Brisbane and, and we had the skating rink here and yeah, I just kept at it. I was pretty determined. My, my, my parents went through a, a fairly nasty divorce when I was younger. So that was kind of like my outlet is to just focus on my sport at that age. And look, I got better. You know, I went to a World Cup when I was 16 and look, I got flogged. You know, I sort of enjoyed it <laughs> <experience> somewhat. <laughs> and is then it, I took a year off. How often are you skating at this point? Like, what is it, even to get to a world, do you have to get invited or does it literally whoever goes? Like, how do you, what kind of level is that? Well, I had to be invited by my coach, who at the time was the, the Australian Winter Olympic coach for skating. Okay. Um, and so, you know, and she wasn't going to take me if I wasn't going to be a little bit competitive or you know, show any prospects of being competitive. So, you know, she had to kind of be convinced that, you know, I was good enough to at least go there and and compete and sort of see how that experience sort of unfolded, I guess, you know, I guess you could say. So, yeah, so I went away to that. It didn't go so well. I think, you know, I finished the race and I was pretty far off the mark and um, came home and I was like, yeah, no, like, I was, you know, 16, 17 at this point, and I thought, no, I'm just going to go to school. I'm going to just take a break. And I kind of just enjoyed my schooling, my final years of schooling, and, you know, that was good for me. That kind of reignited the spark of, like, yeah, I still want this. I still want to do it. I still really want to go to the Olympics or be really competitive at that, at the sport. Um, so I picked it up again when I, when I finished school and trained really hard. So, you know, training sessions were about eight sessions eight or nine sessions a week so both sort of morning and afternoon I'd wake up at 3 a.m and go to the skating rink and skate from like 4 35 o'clock till eight o'clock yeah come home have breakfast you know do a bit of study or you know I had a part-time job as well and in the afternoons I'd go to the gym for four or five hours and then wake (laughs) up again so when you're training for that, I'm guessing is a lot of legs, is it? When you're a skater, what, what's the exercise gym-wise? Is it heaps of cardio? Is it is running a good good training method or is it what's the kind of comparable in the gym? Yeah, so look, yeah, you're right. Legs is a big part of it. So a lot of like squats and leg press, a lot of bench press, ab work, you know, power cleans and Olympic lifting. Yeah, so a bit of everything really but also a lot of um, cross-training, cardio, cycling, yeah, running was, was also pretty important. So you had to be pretty pretty all-rounded in terms of your cross-training capabilities to be able to do the training to be fit enough to then actually compete and perform on ice. And, you know, there's a lot of simulation drills and things like that that we did as well in addition to you know, on-ice training. So, yeah, look, it was hard. Like I think, you know, now you know, I'm obviously a lot older and I look back and I go you know I don't think I could ever train that hard again and I think it's just one of those things when you're younger you think oh yeah no it doesn't affect you as much or you, you seem to be maybe a bit more resilient <laughs> or, or may, I guess you know training doesn't hurt as much and muscle soreness maybe doesn't feel as bad as it does as you get older so yeah I can relate to that the Emily I'm just curious when you went to that first world cup what was it that you observed? Because it sounded like taking a year off from someone who's a big fan of the sport doesn't sound like it's a small decision. What what did you start? To, what was it like for you when you went there? Was it because it can be really? I know when you think academically, there's a lot of um, research showing that if you go to, let's say, you go to Harvard and you're a good, like a really great student, 
sometimes because at Harvard, as an example, there's so many amazing and outstanding students, it can give you an idea that actually you're, you're not as, you're pretty bad. And it can give you a false sense of reality. Whereas actually, if you go to Harvard, you're probably, you know, top one, top 2% of the world anyway. And so did you find that at a scaling level? Did you find it, was it quite impactful, even though you're obviously pretty good to be at that level anyway? Yeah, it, it was impactful. Um, the analogy there is I probably, you know, I felt like I was the dumbest student at Harvard, even though I got into Harvard being in that World Cup environment. I get that, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that was hard. And I, I don't think I was ready for it. You know, I had lived in this bubble in Australia where I was the national champion at that point, you know, when, uh, you know, I, I trained with the guys, you know, I was the only girl on the skating team and, you know, I trained hard. So I thought, you know, I was, I had good prospects and good chances because I hadn't had enough losses to prepare me for that environment. So I took it really hard, uh, but I needed it. I came back and reflected and took some time out before I picked it up again. And was that the advice of the coach to take some time out or was that more because obviously academic pressures too given you're going through school like what was the reason for that? Yeah no it wasn't coach driven no that was all me I you know my my family never pushed me as as a as a kid you know it was all I was very much self-determined so yeah no I think I just wanted to enjoy life with my friends and you know Mm -hmm. enjoy the final years of school and yeah, I guess when you're, you know, a teenager, I was sort of 16, 17, you don't enjoy things that aren't fun or don't feel good, essentially, or you don't tend to do the things that are good for you. You tend to sort of pick the ones that, you know, feel right or feel like you're achieving, essentially. So, um, yeah. I can totally get that. Yeah, for sure. So you got back into it. You really decided to go for it. <laughs> you were training an unbelievable amount by the sounds of things. Um, what was it like going through that? So realizing, okay, if I really want to compete at that level, I'm really after going to go to a whole new, whole new place. What was that discovery like for you? Yeah, look, I still enjoyed it. So, you know, as much as it hurt to train and to be up at that hour, I think the determination kind of masked the, you know, the pain and the suffering that it, you know, it was as, as a sport because of how, how hard it, guess it was physically you know like to be sick from training because you're actually pushing yourself that hard wasn't foreign so yeah no I still but I was you know motivated motivated I think when you're really focused and motivated I don't think you tend to pay attention to what some of those are I guess sensations are you know that aren't so comfortable but to be honest I you know whilst I was training hard and and you know putting myself through a, a lot I was still a fair way off the mark when, you know, you compare where we are as Australian short track athletes with, you know, the Canadians and the Koreans and, and some of the best athletes in the world in, in that particular sport. So, um, yeah, so I was, I was training hard. I, I actually had a really bad injury in 2005 where I, I snapped my ACL in the gym. Ouch. Yeah. And um, that really hit me, you know, that, that hit me, I guess, the most in terms of I think about my career as an athlete across a couple of sports you know when I when I tore my ACL I thought it was all over I thought yeah well you know I can I'm gonna have to give up on my athletic dreams you know Olympics aren't too far off there's you know I have to get through I have I have to get myself to a couple of world cups and qualify to then actually go on and uh, you know make the Olympics so the qualification you know was months away 
and so when that happened it yeah it really impacted I guess on me mentally and obviously physically and uh, I had to kind of rebuild from that point sort of eight nine months out from Olympic trials Um, and look I ended up getting there so in hindsight I I look back and go yeah thank god I had that injury because it also woke me up to another level of discipline that I would need to then actually make it when the time came at later World Cups. So you can guess you you would have had to massively scale back just the sheer volume of training you were you were doing with that injury. Would that would that be fair? I actually did for a couple of weeks until I had the surgery and then I <laughs> kind of reversed it. So <laughs> <laughs> for a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks took it easy. So you had the surgery and then what you you were able to jump pretty much straight back in? No, no. I um I had to swim. So I had to like and I'm not a great swimmer and I look, I'll never be a great swimmer, but yeah. you know, enough to get myself by that, that, that really helped me aerobically. I got quite fit aerobically more so than I had been before the injury and was really disciplined with my rehabilitation to focus on the little things, which wow. wouldn't have spent the time doing otherwise. So, mm. yeah, so I rehabilitated myself and, you know, eventually within sort of three months, I got back almost to full swing and, uh, yeah, a few months later, we we went away to the Netherlands and Italy. So we had to qualify over two World Cups for the Olympics. The first event went really badly. I was very nervous, you know, like my headspace was in the Olympics. It wasn't in how do I actually put one foot in front of the other for each of the races that I need to get through to the Olympics as a, as a yeah. qualifier event and I was very outcome focused in that first world cup and I I think I was at that point you know 40th plus in terms of my ranking and I needed to be in the top sort of 32 in the world to actually make it or create a spot for Australia at the Olympics so the second world cup in Italy I kind of you know went through this they were one week apart so the week in the middle was you know I went through all sorts of waves of emotions and psychologically it was just horrendous (laughs) if I was really honest. But essentially, I got to the World Cup in Italy and took all the pressure off myself, was able to really process, you know, each of the events, just walk through them and and actually just do my best and see what happened. And I had a lot better run. I, you know, finished in top 12, top 16 in in most of the events there. And and then I guess the aggregate result of them was a, a spot for Australia when I got home a couple of weeks later. So, yeah, good ending, I think, to, yeah, to that campaign. What was that like? Like, because it's, I speak to a lot of athletes and they say, like, being an athlete is very selfish. And then in some regards, it's very selfless because there's no guarantee of the actual outcome. So how did you find, like, was that, yeah, what was it like getting the, getting the place? Great. It was, uh, yeah, amazing. Like, I, I remember getting the call. I think it was my coach who called me up. We had arrived back in Australia at that point. We didn't find out for a few weeks after the World Cup and and she said, yeah, you've you've got the spot, like you made it. Yeah, look, I was hugely excited. I mean, but not overly excited <laughs> because I still had to qualify in Australia. So I qualified overseas, but then I had to come oh, back really? to Australia and compete with Australian athletes for the spot. So I qualified the spot for the country, but I hadn't qualified the spot for myself oh, okay. to do that next. Luckily, that was a, a fairly easy process for me because I was the top ranked athlete in the country at the time so yeah. it was pretty straightforward so yeah massive relief after all yeah. of that yeah <laughs> so so you're there you go 
And how did you fare? And what was it like? Obviously, this is different from the World Cup previously. What was it like being on the world stage with, yeah, best of the best? At the Olympics? Yeah, look, I think it's every, it was my dream. You know, as an 11-year-old, I want to go to the Olympics. So I think, yeah, it was a massive highlight and will forever be probably the highlight of my athlete career is to go yeah. to the Olympics, you know. It's, um, yeah, when you dream of that, I think you walk out, you know, opening ceremony to walk out for your country behind your flag with your teammates and, you know, with the people who supported you in getting there, it's, um, yeah, it's an extremely proud moment. So, um, yeah, absolute highlight. Amazing. And I don't even know how you actually fared. What was the outcome in terms of the, the actual race result? What was that matter so much to you or was it really about getting there in the first place? Yeah, look, to be honest, I just wanted to get there. I didn't I knew I wasn't going to win. You know, like uh, we haven't had many medals as a country in short track speed skating. Everybody knows Stephen Bradbury won the gold medal in Salt Lake City for Australia, for Australia and that was our first Olympic gold medal, I believe. So, uh, yeah, but, I mean, apart from Steve, yeah, it's it's very, very challenging to to be in the top five, you know, in short track. So I was just keen to go. And have a good time and and do my best. Essentially, I I finished twelfth in the thousand in the thousand meter, so I was happy with that. You know, to finish top twelve at Olympic Games is as an Australian athlete in a sport where I grew up, yeah. where we had no ice skating, was yeah. Look, I was proud of that. And but you know, obviously, a couple of months later, I reflecting on it, I you know, I, I did want more at that stage, and and so that's when I kind of decided to change over. To, to cycling and try another another sport it's actually a very perfect worth recreation of the cool runnings story <laughs> isn't it in terms of getting there and you know taking part and, and representing for a, a hot country to to play in the cold sports so awesome emily when are they making the movie yeah good question <laughs> you know really cool. yeah i don't know if i could watch myself on television <laughs> yeah. on podcasts let alone television michael <laughs> i know the feeling for sure so tell me about that transition you, you've done you know i think this is i was really curious when we first spoke about this you know that transition from skater to cyclist right definitely there's some there's some similarities i can imagine it's very leg powered but what was that like transitioning from one sport and and like was there a was there almost like a morning process you had to go through to say that you know, I'm going to leave skating where, where it is or what was that like? Yeah, look, at the time I, I just enjoyed it because I transitioned to a sport which physiologically I, I had, uh, I guess, a bit of talent in to be able to kind of, you know, I think I won a first my first medal at the Australian Cycling Championships 12 weeks after transitioning. And, yeah, so I, I was enjoying the high. Yeah, I was enjoying the high of it. And then it quickly became pretty frustrating because whilst I was really physiologically sort of sound in terms of, you know, I had great power and speed and all that type of thing for time trial based events, technically and tactically, ice was starting where, you know, you start from scratch in the sport. So that was really frustrating and really hard. And I think that kind of followed me through my entire sort of cycling career which was um pretty short I think when you compare it to to the time I spent in the in the short track program and were you training in with the people who kind of done that from you know being three years old or whatever you know however young these these athletes are like how did they respond to this kind of this newbie who 
can perform well perhaps from in certain ways but i don't know how, how, how what was that like going into that kind of culture of people who'd been there day dot yeah look i won't lie it was tough it was tough you know it was very competitive environment you know i look i I struggled with that because I had a sport. I'd come from a sport, winter sport program where I was the only girl in the program. I had five guys who were on the Olympic team and they were like my brothers. They, they did support me a lot. And I was the athlete that the sport was supporting and getting behind. Whereas in cycling, I've come into, you know, a top ranked sport in Australia. And there was, uh, look at the time, there was an absolute pecking order around, you know, who, who takes priority and what the structure looks like and a very competitive internal environment within the sport, let alone then having to compete with everybody else in the world. And culturally, I'd imagine, like you say, it sounds like it was super different. And I know when I've, um, I went cycling, when I joined uni, I thought I'd join the cycling club. It was a big mountain biker. And then when I went there, I was like, wow, this is like horrible. Like it was very like, you can't keep up well we're just going to drop you and you know we'll see you later so it was very tricky to them I, I found that and i never really thought about the culture of these sporting teams but it sounds like I'm not saying that was the same but certainly a very different kind of fish it was yeah look you know i won't lie culturally i didn't enjoy it i didn't enjoy cycling uh, I, um, you know it motivated me after sport to try and address some of the systemic issues in culture in sport and I do that today. I also, whilst I'm full-time as a director at QUT in sport, I also consult to the Australian Institute of Sport and fly around the country and deliver program that they call respectful behaviours to high-performance squads. And, oh, yeah. um, and that's address a lot of the communication issues and power imbalances in, you know, high-performance sporting environments, which they're, they're everywhere in sport. I don't think people really realise just how negative some of the culture is in high-performance sport environments. Interesting. Well, that would be a conversation for another day, perhaps. <laughs> Not to know a bit more about that. Tell me, so, you know, from an, like, obviously this podcast is about intelligent performance in different areas of people's lives. From your perspective, what did what kind of cover over, as it were, or what, what did you find that you'd, you'd learn? I can definitely hear resilience, like unbelievable levels of resilience. Emily. I'm just like, wow. Um, and that your willingness to lean into that uncomfortableness of I don't fit in here, you know, that, they're not, I'm not, I haven't, wasn't, you know, I'm not part of this team, but I'm going to still show up and do it anyway. Like that, that's like really unique. I feel like that, that last bit in particular. So like what did carry over from, from that speed skating in, into cycling that kind of kept you, that you found very useful or you could tap into? Yeah. Look, I think um, from a young age, I had a lot of, self-belief and I think that comes back to your upbringing as well you know like I did have I, my parents were very supportive of me growing up and so I never grew up kind of doubting my abilities or or being afraid of jumping in and just having a go not being afraid of making decisions even if I get it wrong you know and being okay with that learning from that and then you know taking the steps to, to rectify or to improve next time and and I think when you don't fear, I guess, some of the consequences, it creates a bit more clarity and self-belief to be able to be resilient and kind of bounce back and not be afraid to make a mistake. And so, yeah, I think, you know, generally, I think that's that's been a huge help for me 
as I've kind of navigated through my athletic career into my professional career and you know obviously to kind of reflect back and and have that awareness so I can kind of support others where they might be struggling is is kind of handy too. And so going into your career now, you've kind of gone full circle in terms of, you know, longer necessarily the competing athlete, but you're helping create almost sports people of the future. And I'd love to touch on the esports that you're now this kind of extended to, because I feel like, I guess from like, what are you seeing in this space? Like, what is it? What does it take to create future sports people or, or competitive? I'd love to hear some of the traits that you're that you're looking for or you're helping to or you're, you're seeing maybe sport more broadly cultivate including these kind of toxic high performance things which you're kind of flagging as as red flags yeah look it's um, it's a really interesting environment now I think in sport that we're in and we find ourselves in 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 the world of sport you know you've got your traditional sports you know you're swimming you're cycling you're running and then you've got new sports new phenomenons like esports that are coming through and um esports is an interesting one because it's exploded it's become this billion dollar industry and you know top athletes in teams are being paid millions of dollars to wow <laughs> yeah to compete in in games in games like League of Legends and Counter-Strike and, you know, a whole suite of other games, essentially. So, yeah, but, I mean, what we are starting to see is, you know, the the resilience needed in traditional sport carries over and it is needed in, in esports to be really competitive. Psychologically is, you know, psychology of esports is, you know, a huge topic that is becoming more and more researched as time goes on and as we progress. So, uh, I, yeah won't lie I think resilience is essential to be a high performance athlete or staff member or you know family member I guess too sometimes for for people as well so are you at a think about like an athlete are you treating these game players like athletes out of interest did you see them and you think about their well-being holistically just like you would you know someone who's yeah a cyclist who's got their nutrition plan their their fitness plan, their, their their psychological plan. Is it as structured as that? It is, yeah. So QUT has had the first esports university governed program in the country. And we have a scholarship program that's sort of the first of its kind in, in Australia that's attached to that. And as part of our sort of athlete academy, our esports athlete academy, they're supported with uh, not just sort of coaching in terms of their technical capabilities in esports but also that extends into their you know nutrition and psychology and their health and fitness where you know they'll they'll go to the gym they'll go to the gyms on campus and you know we know that the top esports athletes are very very fit and healthy people you have to be that way to be able to perform in esports so uh, yeah there's a lot of similarities and um you know you know direct correlations between you know professional traditional sports athletes and esports athletes and so I think you mentioned just before we jumped on something around, obviously we're looking towards Brisbane. Do you think it could be actually featured in that Olympic level side of things? Like, is there, is there space for that? Yeah, look, it's, it's a question that comes up all the time. I reckon I'm asked about 10 times a week. Is it going to be there? <laughs> Sorry to be the 10th. Uh, no, no, it's, that's fine. I, I always wonder who the 11th person's going to be to ask me. <laughs> yeah, I pity them. But what do, what do you reckon? Is it, is it, um, I don't know, I just really struggle with that, actually just thinking about that as a, as a concept, you know, I just feel like you, 
they usually well, uh, yeah i don't know what do you what do you think do you think it, there's a likelihood that it could be yeah look i, I think it, it could be and could is probably the word there you know esports you know the games that are that are played in esports are essentially controlled and governed by the game developers themselves and you know they're sitting on billions of dollars billions of dollars right games is a you know a massive massive company worldwide but there is no central governance around how the sports played and you know there is still a lot of um, you know, essential dangers to esports where, you know, there's match fixing and, you know, there's internet speeds and all sorts of other variables that that come yeah, into, you know, into gaming. I mean, that's improved a lot over the last few years, but, you know, essentially without a, a central governing body that's connected to, say, the International Olympic Committee, until that takes place, I think it's going to be hard to for esports to make that leap into the sort of Olympic sports suite. And, you know, then there's the, the real reality that, you know, esports is, is way bigger than the Olympics. So, you know, it's very much mm, a case that's interesting. Olympics needing the esports as opposed to the, the other way around. Well, I hadn't considered that, but that's why do you say it's bigger? Just because, I mean, from a, like it's a more of a, like it's almost like the Premier League in some regards in terms of the, the attraction it brings. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the number of fans that it engages is up there with, you know, the, NFL you know like it's massive it's absolutely massive wow okay I have no idea about esports it seems fascinating okay and in terms of just to round out this conversation obviously what are you taking from your own journey in terms of what are you prioritizing what do you see in terms of what it takes to perform at the highest level what do you see how do you how are you starting to incorporate that into what you're now helping your athletes do more broadly yeah, so I, um, you know, I'm at QUT, I'm, you know, the director of sports. So, you know, I oversee an elite athlete program, but I also sort of, you know, manage a lot of our sporting infrastructure and also our student programs on campus. And so sort of I sit in this spot where, you know, strategy is, I guess, you know, part of my job, but also, you know, leading a high performance team. And, you know, I think going forward for us, I think it's, you know, to really play a leadership role as we approach 2032 and beyond into that legacy period. I think, you know, having some discipline around what we're trying to do is, uh, as a team, is, is going to be essential to how successful we are as, as a university in, in sport, how well we can, you know, provide the right learning environments for our students to, to be resilient and to succeed at university and beyond. And, uh, you know, for our athletes, I think, you know, we'll play a critical role in ensuring that they have a great student athlete journey, but also, you know, when they are just athletes, you know, you know, supporting them with various mechanisms so that they are resilient and, and can sort of exceed at the top level or, you know, you know, beyond that, once they finish their sport, you know, go on to, to life where they are, you know, feeling like they've got the skills to succeed essentially like a transferable piece because i think that sometimes i see that actually a lot actually i feel like sports people can transfer their skills or their experience very very well actually it's very relatable to business just that like and i think it's understanding what it takes to be great at something like that willingness to push through all that challenge i think i look back at my school career i never achieved great stuff at 
at a sporting level and it kind of annoys me because i'm like oh man you learn so much in that process especially like working as a team or something like that so would you find do you think that's a fair assessment emily that's that's from a unsophisticated and someone who hasn't done it would you do you think it is relatable or transferable sporting prowess or elite elite work yeah absolutely i think it is i think um you know, athletes, you know, and athletes who study or athletes who apply themselves, you know, beyond sport, you know, have a set of skills that perhaps the general population don't have, you know, strategically, they're able to sort of break down goals into measurable steps and, and yes, focus. Really good point. And, you know, I think generally they're fairly competitive, so they want good outcomes for their company organisations or, or wherever they might be working. And, and I think, you know, generally for the most part you know athletes are pretty pretty humble people and they're great team players too so they you know culturally fit into you know working teams and environments um really well yeah like key skills which are actually not taught very well in academic <laughs> institutions largely speaking so yeah no very very cool awesome well emily i think i've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion i've um yeah, it's awesome. Thank you for the kind of behind the scenes look as to what it actually takes to to compete at that level, and then not only do it in one in one one sport, but then go into to cycling. Just to round out the conversations, I'm sure people will be curious. Where did you take your cycling in the end? I think you still got to something like the Com Games or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, no, I did. I um went to the Commonwealth Games in in India and got a medal there, which was yeah another highlight of my life. But um, yeah, look, yeah, I had a really fortunate career in cycling too so i look back and they're you know memories that i'll cherish that's an amazing effort mate uh, yeah to get, especially given that you weren't loving the culture you weren't particularly welcome <laughs> i bet that really pissed off a few people as well so good on you so awesome work emily thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure thanks so much michael great to chat